Welcome back or welcome to Talking Performance. Today I'm joined by one of New Zealand's best coaches, Shane McLeod. Shane coached the New Zealand men's hockey team, the Black Sticks, in the 2008 and 2012 Olympic Games. And after a disappointing games in 2012, he took some time to reflect, slowed down to speed up and came back a better coach. That evolution led him to coaching the Belgian men's hockey team to Olympic gold in Tokyo to go with the world title in 2018 and the European Championships in 2019. We're lucky to have him back in New Zealand for a little while, and after listening to this, you'll understand why. Shane brings so much, which can help any team, whether that be in business or sport. I bring you Shane McLeod. Righto, today, very privileged to have with us Shane McLeod. Shane is an Olympic gold medal winning coach. Uh, formerly coaching New Zealand Black Sticks, but more recently with Belgium. Uh, Shane, thanks heaps for coming on. Um, thanks for joining me today and looking forward to this chat. Yeah, it's a pleasure. It's, um, it's always nice to talk uh, hockey and, and things in and around hockey. So yeah, I've been looking forward to it as well. Nice. So I, uh, I heard your presentation a few weeks ago when you spoke at Taronga Hockey and uh, I found it captivating and I think... I said to you at the time, I took a page or pages of notes. Um, and, you know, albeit we'll talk about hockey today, but a lot of it is, um, you know, transferable to any sport, really. It's just coaching. Yeah. Or even You could even take it as far as it's transferable to any um, organisation that's working with teams. You know, um, at the core of, of my beliefs is people and, and getting the best out of them. And... Um, and yeah, so I use I use hockey as as the the way that I, I do it, but it it certainly can go across many different sort of fields. I think. Yeah, hundred percent agree with that. Hey, how did your journey come about? You were with the New Zealand Black Sticks in um, in two thousand and eight, two thousand and twelve Olympics. How has your coaching evolved? I guess since those days to where you're at now. It's been a pretty interesting sort of journey. Like. Um, how I would describe it is I got thrown into uh, an international role uh, unexpectedly a little bit. So I was coaching over and purposely gone over to Europe to, um, to upskill and learn a different uh, style of, of, of playing. Uh, and the, the sole reason I went over was really for my coaching and development and so on. Um, I'd always loved the culture and the um, you know, being in Europe is is kind of you, when you're there, you feel as if you're in the centre of the the world because it, it's just so busy and all around you. And so I was attracted to that as well. But um, in regards to the coaching, I went over there and then got asked to come back to work with um, Kevin Towns. And Kevin at the time was the um, New Zealand Black Sticks men's coach, and he, he really was um, an outstanding coach. Um, and, and I held him in, in quite high esteem, um, esteem uh, even then. And I came back to work with him. Um, and six months later, he changed over the programs. He um, went over to the woman's side. And he tells me that's not because I came came back and was working with <laughs> him. It, it was just one of those things that happened. So I was kind of searching for um, a new mentor and no one was really sticking their hands up. And uh, the CEO of New Zealand Hockey at the time, I flew up and saw him and just tried to explain why I wasn't going to go for the the position because I, I just thought, look, I'm, it's too early. I, I want to do it when I'm ready to do it. And he said, okay, that's fine. Uh, but then a couple of weeks later, he gives me a call back and says, look, no, we haven't had any anyone else put their hand up. Can you take the Dutch team, uh, a, a series against the Dutch team um, in January, and then we'll try and find someone after. And I thought, oh, look, I can do that. Um, it's no, no, not a biggie, they're just world number one and <laughs> I haven't beaten them for probably 26 years or so. Uh, but I thought, oh, look, this would be a nice little challenge. And so I took the team and, um, and what, I, uh, what I did because of the insecurities, I probably uh, surrounded myself with the, the group and uh, really drew upon their skill set to, to give me a hand. And in doing so, um, we, we kind of both went on the journey at the same time of, of designing a game plan and putting a game plan out that was really simple, uh, but everyone knew it. And so it was really the ideal game plan to play against Holland. And we won our first game. So um, 
I was thinking, what's everyone talking about? This coaching is easy. <laughs> and um, that continued along that line for, for quite a while. And it probably was, was, um, wasn't was until after Beijing that I, um, that I kind of got caught up a little bit and, and uh, went off in the, in the wrong direction. And the direction I went off was I thought I had to study more about about the game and, and learn the game more and more and more. And in doing so, I kind of uh, moved away from the stuff that I was doing well, you know, the involving the players and so off, so on. And and at some point in time, I, I kind of lost uh, my team. And um, somewhere between 2008 and 2012, we kind of separated. And so we were working along uh, beside each other rather than amongst each other. Um, and we had a really disappointing Olympic Games. We finished ninth out of 12 teams. And when you're a better team than ninth, that really hurts, you know. And um, and so there was it was quite a big reflection moment. And um, and it took a bit to get over that. So the next kind of two years was, um, yeah, a bit of healing, but a lot of reflecting. And um, and what I uh, what I gained from that that pause was to realise that. Look, what I was doing in the first instance was actually right. You know that um, that having a very plaid-centered approach to what I'm doing and um, and getting them part of the journey or taking them on the journey with me was really important. And so I'll, I'll never go back to that that uh, being immersed in front of a computer. Um, the only by- good byproduct with with doing that is now I'm I'm incredibly fast at, at game plans and things like that. And so I can do it when no one's looking really and then and then put that aside and, and work on the, the, the main stuff, which is, you know, bringing the team together, working on the culture and, and so on. So, yeah, that's kind of been my journey. It's been a kind of um, return to the beginning, but hopefully with a, a slightly better version of the game that I, that I first introduced. Yeah, right. Did you have a moment in that... Um between 28 and 2012 where you realized that you'd lost the group or was it on reflection no no you, you know it but you 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 get caught up with some other things as well like um you know new zealand is is such that um you don't always have the luxury of having development moments you know especially if you're in the head role of a of a program or even if you're a uh, a black stick or an all black or things like that you know people have an expectation that that you go out every game to win and uh and things rely on it you know people's jobs rely on it um people's selection uh funding all those type of things are, are geared for result result, result and it's very difficult to shift your focus away from that knowing that the result is actually what everyone else is judging you by and you have to be a bit brave, you know. And so, you know, I, at some point in time, I was so worried about the result that even though I was losing the group, I, I, I couldn't couldn't get them back. I didn't know how to, to change that. I, I call it the grip. And I, I've spoken to a few coaches that have that, that recognise that term because I think it, it describes it quite aptly. Yeah. Um, and so... When you start to go, if you look at your uh, 2008 where you were player-centred but possibly from a really vulnerable place um, to then how you are now player-centred, what's changed in that space? How have you evolved that? Well, just um, become braver and more creative in, in how I do that. You know, like um, I love having conversations with players and I liked varied conversations. So... To do that, I, I've worked hard to um, to try and keep ahead of them in where we're going, and also to trigger uh, the kind of conversations that I think are really valuable. And, and most of the time, athletes they just need a little bit of a guidance as to how they shape their own development, and those conversations um, needed to be triggered by by a, a small task or. A, or a meeting, a one-on-one type of thing. So an example I'd give give you is I I will often set um, the players a homework task with the sole purpose of talking with the players afterwards once I've done it. You know, I'll give them a selection, for example, a selection sheet and say, you know, tomorrow we're going to the Olympic Games. 
um, what's your starting 11. The only criteria is you have to put yourself in there, you put yourself in the, in the position where you're going to be the most productive. And you can have some fantastic conversations based around that. And players quite enjoy it because it's it's real. It's um, mm. it's talking about a whole lot of different things, um, but in a very uh, protected and very safe way. You know, so yes, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Yes, I, t- I heard you talk about that um, at the presentation you gave, where you said to them exactly that: you've got to select the team. Where did that idea come up? With uh, were there any negatives to it? Were there any? Um, hiccups that you've evolved with it uh, and do you still use that process now? Yeah I, I still use that one it, it was a sometimes you think of something and, and like I, I if you start a new project I find that that's the the best time to get that um, the substance of work out in front of you and so if I take over a team before I even make contact with them um, or do Sometimes I do observations with them, for sure. But before I do any sort of coaching or trying to develop them, I try and put in place what are they missing and, and um, where are they at. And, and I usually look at three areas. I look at them, um, the hockey, which is obvious. So, you know, that's that's quite a big piece of work and, and you can't avoid that. Um, but that's a given. So I move that aside. The next um, bit that I look at is at their culture. How are they operating as a, as a group? Where are the opportunities that they could operate better? Uh, who are key influences in the group? Um, how do they impact? Is it a positive, negative or negative way? And so that's quite a big piece of work. And, and that's where a lot of the ideas get stimulated from. Um, you know, I, with most teams, um, there are some things you can guarantee. One is that they're um, competitive. They're competitive people. So they... They, um, they know how to, um, you know, they know the hierarchical way of winning, you know, so they, they can put themselves in a, in a selection themselves because they, they do that on a daily basis. I'm better than him or he's better than me. And, and so they kind of juggle it around. So, so that's a little bit of a given. Um, and the, the second thing is often they have a bit of an ego you know, and having an ego, um, people people try and steer away from that. But if you think about that logically, it's actually their ego that's brought them to that place. You know, like if you don't have the confidence in yourself um, to play international hockey, you're always going to struggle a bit. So the, these people that I'm working with, they have those two things, competitive and there's an ego. And so how do you get those things working in a direction that is for the benefit of the individual and the collective group. And that's really what culture is is, is doing. It's uh, understanding what makes people um, do what they do and then guiding them so that they have the best possible impact with those around them. So when you're uh, looking at a team, a new team that you maybe don't know intimately and you're trying to work out the culture and are there any things that you look at uh, either on field or off field? Are there any cues or giveaways that you'll watch for? Well, there's signs everywhere. Um, like a, a simple one is that if you watch your team celebrate and if you're lucky enough to take over a team that has won something where they celebrate, it's quite a good moment because you, you can see um, how they do that. And, and a team that has a, an excellent culture you find that they, 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 there'll be some magnetic point that they all come together to, and, and it forms this incredible huddle, but they're all there. Um, and you think that that's what happens everywhere, but it, it's not exactly true. Often you'll see two or three people going into that particular huddle. There'll be another group that celebrate together there, and usually there's a connection there. You'll see some going to the bench and connecting with the coaching staff. You'll some go some go directly into the supporters and connecting there. So, you know that that for me is a sign that the, um, there hasn't been enough work to create that that circle of trust or that bond that brings that unites all of them. All of those shared experiences are not obvious enough to everyone. Um, whereas when they do it in small celebrations, they kind of 
smaller circles of trust and they're, they're people that have um, that, that know why they're doing things the way they are but it's not a not a true um, big group I think yeah so what would you do in that case if you well where would you obviously it's not a it's a bit of a how long's a piece of string question I suppose but what some of the things that you could do to uh, try and bring, bring that group together yeah, so I'll give you an example of one of the things that we did because we had a, quite a fractured group when we started. And so we took the group to South Africa and we, we did a camp there. And normally in those type of camps, it's an Olympic camp, you would um, you'd commit a lot of your time to the hockey, the on-field stuff. And so you would train them hard and uh, try and take them to a new physical level and play three or four games at the end of the thing when you're well-prepared. Uh, hoping that you get a good feeling because you win those games. <clears throat> we thought, look, we've got to commit more time off the field than, than is currently happening. So we kind of divided the time 50-50, 50 for the hockey. Um, but the other um, period of time was that culture build. And what we noticed um, or what we had to first do is see how bad is this, you know, and, and we plotted where the players came in on day one, two and three, of the camp um, where they would sit in the dining room and it was set up in kind of tables and we found that the players would go sit in their club tables so they would be dragons or leo or rex or what ducks or so on and it became very obvious that um, there was um, a separation there was not one particular group and so we we had to try and break that down and so how we broke it down is we did a whole lot of low risk exercises and and one that i'll share is like we did a kind of a speed dating uh, type of thing so not the tinder <laughs> swipe left and swipe right it was the old school one where they they made contact with each other you know knee to knee and they looked in each other's eyes and then they said two good things about that person and, and one one interesting or an area to work on and the concept is that um, it's not really the two minutes, but once you've done the full circle, uh, it's you can go back at a later time and revisit that. And then we watch what happened after those series of exercises. And the players, rather than coming in and going to their groups, they would come in and they would sit with whoever they walked in at the same time. So you would see the tables just starting to fill up as people entered and, and just sat down. Uh, we also saw players that um, would get up and they would walk from their old place over to a new one and, and revisit that conversation from earlier. And the last thing that we noticed was that um, the whole volume in the dining room was getting louder and louder and louder. And we thought to ourselves and, and we actually looked at each other and, and, and said, um, yeah, this is uh, the first time we've actually seen the Belgium Red Lions team up until that point in time. It just been a collection of players. Mm. When you did the uh, the speed dating, did you have any uh, coaching intervention after that? Was there any questions? And did the players record what feedback they got, and were they expected mm -hmm. to do anything with it, or was it just left as it was? Um, yeah. So we kind of yeah we we. The whole time there was a little bit of feedback about uh, where we were going and so on. And like, we would always ask them what's their observations, you know, because we, we um, and it's probably just a little bit of what's also changed in my coaching. Like what, what I used to do in the past, I guess, was um, I used to um, coach at players and then get them to follow. And then when they followed, I would acknowledge, okay, you've done that how I've wanted you to do that. And um, in this series of speed dating type of things, what we did was more along the lines of, you know, what, what did you think and what did you feel after that exercise, you know, and um, and we, we could predict what was going to happen, but we could never predict how big it was going to grow and, and how um, well they took it on. You know, so so that's where they came in and they, they gave us feedback. And, you know, there were some some really nice things that were said uh, in some of the debriefs, just saying, look, we've, I've played 10 years with this guy and this is the first time I actually feel I know him, you know, and, and um, it's because, you know, you can be in the same room with someone, but you can be sitting by yourself 
it's, it's pretty easy to do. So, yeah, so that, that's kind of, um, yes, such an interesting area, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the things I sort of uh, love about doing this is I get to chat to people like you and just how you framed that up was like so much learning out of that around, you know, your in the past you would have gone in with your own expectations and done it your way, but actually there's a bigger bigger picture at play there. Yeah, and it's what, what I find really nice now is um, watching how organic it can grow. You know, that's um, it, we, we even use the terminology, we plant seeds, you know, and um, another example, have I got time to do examples? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so what, one example that I, I often tell that had such an incredible ripple-on effect was that um, I, I, uh, one of the homework tasks that I gave the guys to do at the end of, it, of the interview, I asked them a couple of quite tricky questions, and I know they're tricky because I just want to see them, how they're a bit uncomfortable. Um, and I, I asked them, um, you know, what, what do you bring to the environment? Why, why is this a good place with you in it? And they always think I'm talking high performance and they always think I'm talking hockey from past experience. And so they say, oh, look, I run fast or I, um, I train hard and I stop them. And I say, no, 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 I, I haven't asked you correctly because you're not answering it how I think it could be answered. So I said, look, if you weren't here, what would we miss? Why, why is this a good place for others that you're in it? And again, I know it's a tricky question. And then I tell them, look, I've got this list of 25 projects. And, and if you can't think of something um, at the moment that you're doing to that, that makes us a better place, you can have a look at my list and, and, um, and you can choose something and maybe you can drive that from now until, you know, over the next few months and see how it goes. They always ring because, um, or they always come back to me. And I, I think it's because they don't want to have a look at my list and that they're a bit worried about the project <laughs> Um, but one, uh, one guy in particular rang me and he, he's a super nice guy, um, but, but not in the core of the group. He kind of sits just a little bit on the, the outside and, and he rings me and he, um, he rings me quite late at night, 11 o'clock. And that, that might be one of the reasons he sits just outside <laughs> that, that main group. Um, but his conversation goes like this. Um, I, I, I would like to have a small budget. And the reason why is I've got a friend that has a fruit and vegetable store and he's really keen to do something for the Belgium Red Lions. Um, and so what I thought is I could, on the um, double training session days, I could do an order the day before. He can drop off a whole lot of fruit and vegetables and stuff um, and then I'll get a couple of blenders and that's what the budget's for and I'll make some smoothies and then the guys can go over the shower after the first session I'll make the smoothies and pour them out and then I'll go have a shower and I'll join everyone for lunch. And it's such a good concept. It covers a lot of things, you know. Um, it's got it's nutritional, nutritional, it's very giving. and it, I, I quite like that. It's serving and, and stuff. So I said, oh, well, let's try it for a couple of weeks and see how it goes. And very quickly you could see that this project was a real winner. And um, each time he came back from his his shower, he was inundated with, um, oh, thanks, that's awesome, great, uh, so, such a nice smoothie. Does this one have almond and, and avocado and what's the recipe? But everything just brought him closer and closer into the group. And if that's all it was, then then that was enough. But the, the profound thing was that in making the smoothies, what he would do is he would go out the back and he'd work with the, the catering staff and in, um, and in doing so, he learned how incredibly proud the catering staff were to be preparing food for the Belgian Red Lions. It was kind of their Olympic journey and their, their, um, their claim to fame. And he, he passed that information back through the guys. And what I saw happen to the guys is rather than a, a team of athletes that would uh, just finish off their meal, leave the plates and cutlery on the table and then go over rest, you saw them uh, after the meal picking up their stuff, taking it out the back uh, into the kitchen, putting it in the sink and making it as easy as possible for them to do their job. Um, and with three weeks to go to the Olympics, I, I saw them all gathered around this table 
and um, and I'd put a ban on signing memorabilia in the last month because I just wanted them to focus on the hockey and, and, and not too much else. And our sponsoring department always wanted them to sign things. So I'd, I'd put a bit of a ban on it. And I looked over and I saw them there signing these shirts. And I, said, I went over there and I said, hey, what's going on here, guys? And they said, oh, no, look, um, it's not what you think. We're, we're signing these shirts and it's for the chef and the assistant. We just wanted to thank them for uh, all the work they've done. And, and oh, I really got that one wrong. Oh, yeah. But I stepped back and I, I watched and I watched them do this um, presentation to to the um, catering staff and it was really moving. You know, the, the um, chef and the assistant were, were truly touched, you know. Uh, there was a tear in the eye and, and it was done very well. But what I saw was that our circle of trust, you know, that, that group that we've been forming had grown a little bit and it had captured uh, the catering staff and they were also brought into it. And it just made for such a lovely um, sort of working environment when you know that everyone's doing their very, very best um, for, for each other. You know, and that started just with such a small concept and, and grew. Yeah, that would have been so cool to watch. Yeah, it was. Uh, during that, you said a couple of things around, you know, you like that it was serving and you liked that. Does the team uh, have values and do you operate with a values-based process? And if so, how do you bring that to life over and above just, you know, doing that once a year, going through the obligatory, yeah. what are our values, putting them in the drawer sort of thing? Yeah, so we... we um I've tried to tackle it a little bit differently because I um, I think that, you know, it, it shouldn't be a process where you just tick the box and say, oh, look, we have values. You know, they have to be lived um, every day and they have to actually be part of you. So I have a strong belief that um, the values are set with the, the role models. So, you know, I'll work very closely with three or four players that, are incredibly influential with the group and I always involve them with the process that, that um, we're going through so that they they get an intimate understanding of, of what are we trying to achieve by doing that and then they can give guidance in their own particular way um, but I also do that with the coaching staff so for example um, I uh, I have some suggestions to my staff that I follow and, and one of the suggestions is when we go on tour that we put our rooms in such a way that if um, players pass our door, uh, if they see it open, that it's an invitation for them to come in and discuss hockey and things like that. I also, um, so if the door's open, it's a working policy. And I like the fact that the players see us working for them. You know, I think that's a, a good thing to see. And the, the players and staff also know that if, you know, if you've got half an hour that you want to speak with your wife or, or your partner or things like that, you just close the door and there's a respect that when a door is closed that, that you leave it. And sometimes when you're working and you don't want to be interrupted, it's also closed. But having that discussion uh, and, and telling the rationale behind that and, and the methodology, it means it's, um, it's incredibly open and it's, it's almost an invite to use it how it's designed, you know, and it's, it's, it's not uncommon for a player to walk past my room and see one or two players sitting in my room and us talking about things, you know, and it's usually hockey stuff, but not always, yeah. you know. And so, so that's living the values. We, we're uh, incredibly open. Um, we have some, we have some not, not tactical values, but some, um, yeah, some, some, key words that we can put images to that we we have on our um, game plans and in our correspondence you know so one of the things that we have on is resilience uh, we have another that is relentless um, so we were a team that if we were winning 1-0 uh, we would be happy enough to finish 1-0 you know not that not that relentless continue 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 that that had been displayed but like teams like Australia and so on um, pride and, and so on. So so we have some stuff that we vis visually show. We can back that up with video and so on. But they're kind of words that they've chosen and that they kind of evolve. You know, does this fit now? 
or not really. So we, we look for another route and we have five of those. Um, yeah, so that's, that's kind of how we do it. Yeah, nice. Hey, just on that role model thing, if you've got a uh, either one or a few key influences who maybe aren't positive influences, but they are definitely leaders of a group and influences, how do you tackle that? where they may not be living the values, but they're influencing the group. Yeah, like oh, I, I don't suffer that too often, luckily. Um, partly because I, I recognise it quickly and, and I, I try and... I, I always give people to work with the culture that we're building. And, and so I have to make it incredibly clear as to what is acceptable and what's not acceptable behaviour in that. And that's to help me, that's to help um, identify people that are not aligned with my thinking. And so, you know, if there was someone that was uh, having a negative influence or role modeling in a negative way, I would try and work really closely with them for a period of time with the hope that I would um, would change some of their behaviors and, and get them working more in line. Because if you can switch them, then it, it becomes even easier you know, um, but if you can't, you know, that's, that's, that's where sometimes people just don't, don't fit, you know, like you, you, you need to build a culture and, and then the culture should attract the style of people that want to work within that, you know, that's mm. certainly in business, uh, the hiring and firing, but, but also high performance sport, if there's players, even if they're good players, if they're counterproductive to the team, then, then you sometimes have to move them aside. Mm. Um, the thing that I've found, though, is that um, that most people get it. There's something in it for them. And you know how I spoke earlier about egos. Yeah. Often it's that ego that's that conflict at the start. So, you know, get a, work out why that ego is resisting what, what what's going on. And, and often you can affect some change there. Mm. So if that if we're talking about uh, creating high performance teams, and as you say quite rightly, a lot of what you're saying here is transferable to any group of people, um, and the circle of trust sort of starts that off. Well, what are the other ingredients to to creating an, a high performing team? Yeah, so so we um, I think every team is slightly different, or um, they have similar ingredients, but maybe the it's the amount that you have to put into to make your cake i guess mm. um so we started off with the circle of trust the second thing you know when i was talking to you about um about the dining room the other thing that was was painfully obvious in the dining room was was like there was this imaginary line down the center and on one side there was the french speaking players and on the other side there was the flemish speaking players so what we had to try and do was to uh, change that divide and, and illustrate how diverse those particular cultures were and the strengths that those cultures could could bring to our, our total team. And, and we we used language to kind of do that. And, um, and being a, a Kiwi, I'm actually not so good at French and not so good at Flemish. So... I sat in this, this strange little place, but a great place to observe. And what I observed was that Belgian people have this incredible gift. Um, they have the gift that they can speak to the person that's standing in front of them in the language of that person. And, and they, they'll switch very quickly from French to Flemish to English, often to Spanish and, and even German. You know, they're so talented. Um, and so I said to them one time, look, let's use that to our advantage. You know, like when we play... Um, Holland, let's do our tactics in French. You know, we can operate and all you guys know what's going on. They don't know what's going on. It's great. When we play France, vice versa, you can speak Flemish and, and speak openly. And I always make a joke. And when we play Korea, well, it doesn't matter what you say. No one knows what's going on when you play those guys. Um, but it, it's it's just a new way to present something that's always been there and been seen as divisive. And yeah. I, I saw it as you know, such a, um, a way to click the group and make their collective IQ so much greater, you know, because they do think a bit differently. And it's, it's really topical at the moment, you know, the gender diversity and ethnic diversity. This is a country that has those different cultures operating in that area and 
we had to tap into it. And, and so that became one of our ingredients. The other one um, was, well, that was actually really interesting was that um, they were a team that had never beaten those top nations before. And so we had to try and think about a way to change their expectation because people never achieve what they don't expect to achieve. That's what I am, um, or very seldom anyhow. Mm. Um, and so um, we designed uh, a room, an Olympic room, and we um, put all of the our um, tactics and stuff around the room. So it was kind of like a three-dimensional di- three playbook. We had a coffee machine in there so the players would come in. Uh, we had the physio bed so that, you know, when people were waiting, they were looking at the room and things like that. And we also put up these um, photos. And on these photos, uh, we blew them up as big as we possibly could. And they were photos of Australia, Germany, and Holland. But what was specific about them was that there was a Belgian player in the center of the photo in a dominating position. They had just scored a goal against them or uh, running with the ball and people are trying to tackle them. But, but certainly they were the masters in that picture. And um, you can imagine the, the players would come into that room, they'd have a coffee, um, and for 10 months they were surrounded by that type of imagery, and, and it, it gave them that belief that they could win that. And they'd never beaten Holland in, in, the, in their history, not 20 years ago or 30 years ago, in their history. Yeah. And the day before the semi final of the Olympic Games, they wanted to play that game, they wanted to play Holland because they thought that they were going to beat them. And, and they did, you know, and, and uh, I think that those, that imagery played no small part there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> initially, when you put the imagery up, um, you know, I assume you get a sense of excitement from the players and buzz. Is, is there anything you did to build underneath that um, to reaffirm that? So the language was also an interesting one. So we did kind of um, not a propaganda campaign, but just an awareness campaign that um, I I took a whole lot of clips of of teams that were going to play against Australia and things like that. And I I demonstrated how often the the captain or the the coach would talk and, and it would go something like this. Um, today we play against Australia. You know, it's not going to be an easy day at the office. They're the best team in the world, and you know we're going to have to be at our best to to uh, do okay here. And you know we're we're just still developing the uh, the finished product. So they're kind of protecting themselves. I said we don't do that. You know, I I gave them a different example. I said um, I, I it went something like um, I'm really looking forward to playing Australia. They're one of the few nations that comes close to matching some of our areas of game. And I'm interested to see where where they're at and see if they've made any gains against us, you know. And it's the same conversation, but one is one is not conceding that one team is better um, and, and kind of putting yourself above that. And now when we, we watch teams talk about us, they talk about they they do they protect themselves mm. and so our guys gain a bit of confidence with that and and um yeah, it's it's really interesting to to watch how they've evolved from being almost scared to play someone to to wanting to you know that desire yeah so in terms of debriefing if you did play let's say australia and in, in a three t series and you lost three would that your language would still be shaped in that same way yeah it would so you, you have to be real like you can't, like if you got thumped, but the teams, you know, we were getting closer and closer to those teams. Every, every month that we were progressing, we were getting closer and closer. And so you can you can paint the picture in different ways. So statistically, you know, you can, you can um, outstat teams, for example, and still lose games, depending on what, what the stats are that you're looking at. Um, but what we were doing was we were measuring our progress so we would take past games against Australia and look at the areas where we were getting more and more dominancy. And um, and that helped us, you know, like players knew that we were making those gains. It just needed to be presented in, in good ways. And, um, and that's also a directional thing. So in the past, what would have happened would be that they would show clips of Australia doing well 
and saying, oh, look, we need to fix these type of things. When I presented to the guys, I, I would often show this is what we're doing well and this they were very lucky to not concede a goal here. You know, if we had done this little bit, a little better, then it's one nil to us. And, and, you know, so again, I was really mindful with how I presented that. Um, certainly had to be believable and it was believable. It was an easy story to tell, but um, yeah, you, your words are incredibly powerful in those situations. Mm. It must've been wickedly satisfying to, uh, assuming if, um, you know they hadn't uh that holland they hadn't beaten was that was yeah, holland they hadn't been? Yeah, yeah, yeah and then to become so if you've never beaten a team in the history but then you become olympic uh gold medalists from a coaching point of view from the journey that must have been pretty special oh it's a wicked story it's um and and a crazy ride you know um and, and incredibly lucky to be part of that you know like all, all the ingredients were there. And, and look, I'd love to say that I took them from zero to hero, but um, I, I was the fifth coach in, in five years, but each one of those uh, coaches had given them a gift and, mm. um, and that gift had stayed in the program. So, for example, the first one actually shone the light a little bit on the team and, and so on. The next one, um, he affected their lifestyle. So he was a real bad cop and and um, made sure that they, um, they stopped going out and, and they led a much more professional life, um, inducive to high performance and so on. The next one was very good technically and tactically. So, you know, by the time I got there, they were this rough sort of diamond that had most of the tools, but, but no one had worked on the culture aspect. And so, um, so yeah, it was just polishing, you know, and, and getting them super shiny and, and trying to do do that in a, in a timely fashion. So it was good fun, really. Yeah, yeah, I bet it was. Did you make that explicit to the players? I love the. I was thinking as you were talking, man, you're so humble and open, um, vulnerable, egoless. I guess were words that were popping in my head when you were talking about the gift that those other coaches gave. You know, uh, I think that's takes a pretty special person to to say that i believe um did you say that to the players when you came in and took over did you say hey look you know obviously on the fifth and i assume a fair chunk of them had been had seen all five coaches some of them maybe not but did you make that explicit to them yeah yeah and like i I think one of the skills that i have is i observe like I, i um i do have the ability to step back and watch um and and it helps me in a number of areas and um, it certainly helped me to when I took on the job to be very clear and um, and quite precise as to what I spoke to the players about because you know what they were searching for was affirmation that all of these years hasn't been a waste of time you know and mm-hmm. um, and, and I, I never tell anyone anything that I don't believe as well and, and if I didn't tell them that then I'm holding back Quite valuable information you know so yeah i do find that um yeah i find it useful the other the other reason i quite like being an observer is it often will put me in a in a point of strength so when i took over the team they knew me but didn't know me and they they thought they knew who i was and so there was kind of, you know, the same type of mystique that they had for these other um, teams. They had that a little bit for myself. And so I was very mindful that I didn't want to let them down or or, um, or be in a situation where uh, I lost a little bit of that belief. So what I would do early is I would often just ask a question, even if I didn't know the, the answer. And I would watch how they would go about um, offering solutions and so on. And because they were really uh, clever and articulate, I was able to sit back and then pick out all of the best of their, what they were presenting and their, all their arguments. And then at the end, I could summarize. And because my, um, my summary was very succinct and it was on point, um, it, it was quite impressive, but it was none of my information. It was just because I listened well and put it in a, 
in a clear way that that kind of brought everything together that they um they loved that you know because they felt oh look his ideas are are the same as ours but they're just one level up you know and they're, they're kind of up because i listen yeah um, yeah so they got used to that type of behavior and it means that they were invited to discuss more as well mm, must be a safe place for them as athletes to be able to feel like the coach is there to serve you rather than necessarily you to serve the coach which must be a nice place to play from yeah well i remember them um they told me about a, a debrief session that took over two hours and uh how it started was the coach at the time had said to them look um here, here's here's a clip i want you to have a look at it and um tell me what you think um who, who's got a comment and so one of them put the hand up and said look i think this and he goes no 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 that's that's not right and so he spent the next 10 minutes explaining why that was wrong and this is the way to do it and then he put up the next clip and he asked and no one put their hand up you know and um and he couldn't work out why they he just thought oh look they don't know anything from then on so he just just hammered them uh, for two hours and and um and they explained that to me and it, it was it's an easy uh trick to fall into you know you coach at people rather than yeah all the information that they have out on the table yeah. do you have someone in your team uh, in your coaching staff that will call you out if they think you've you know done something similar obviously not to that extreme but yeah yeah i do like i've been really careful to surround surround myself with uh, quite different people um well it's not entirely true there was one one guy that i um worked with that, that had a similar style so a similar belief uh, to me you know about the culture and, and stuff like that and i worked with them uh for um for the first kind of 10 months um and, and we moved quite quickly but we quickly realized that we had to have different people and, and so my assistant coach and the coach that's taken over the, the team now he's almost my um my uh or the complete opposite really yeah. um but we complement each other quite well you know like i'm quite soft-spoken and I, I care a great deal for the athlete he, he don't get me wrong he cares for the athlete as well but he thinks that at times it should be a lot harder and so on and so we often uh, have this debate about things and um to the point that we use each other uh, very well so he hates having little one-on-one -on -one conversations with players and stuff but if um if we're trailing in a game and i've given them some factual stuff and there's still 10 or 15 percent of the players that need a bit of a harder voice you can see him in the back of the the um the changing sheet say oh, i'm ready let me add him <laughs> and um and he'll come and give him a blast and he's good at it you know he, yeah. he keeps control of what he wants to say but it comes across boom 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 and it's really effective and and collectively we we tap all of those those players quite well mm. um and so you know i i think it, there's a danger when you have a staff that everyone pats each other on the back and say oh you did a great job no 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 you you coach really well today you actually need to have um different people challenging you the whole time you also have to trust and and they're, they're doing it for the right reasons but that's your most healthy staff as if you've got all of your, your bases covered off Mm. So I can only assume he's got someone like you now and as his assistant? Yeah, well, I'm going back there just to do a little bit of stuff to see how that's going. Um, yeah, yeah, so there'll be a different dynamics because he'll come in. And he's also, you know, when you're in different roles, you take on some di different characteristics. And, you know, he at, at the t when we're working together, his role was to be my opposite. And so... You know, I hope that he's actually taken on some of the things that he's seen being really successful. And you actually see that coming into his coaching now. He's quite a different uh, character in the head role than he was in the um, in the, um, in the assistant role. Yeah, yeah I was going to ask you that. Do you think that, um, do you think that uh, let's say that you were the softly spoken, if we even just simplified it to good cop, bad cop, and I know it's not that simple, but um, is there a part of, your development as a coach where you think you need to perhaps get some of those skills that he had 
as he needs to get some of the skills that you have or do you think stick to what your strengths are well it's actually a really good question like i do try i've played around with it you know um and it's not easy for me so one of the things that if if i try and fire up and and it's not real what happens is is i lose clarity and so it's um it's not always well delivered And, and and so um yeah, so I don't think I'm as effective. I, I will still try and do it. But um, what I've probably got clearer at is people understand when I'm not happy. You know, I, I give more um, clues away and, and more signs that this is not acceptable behaviour and, and so on. Um, and I've probably learned that a little bit through through him. But I'll never go to the same extremes. It's just the same as he, he'll never... Um, he'll never coach how I, I coach fully, even though we can appreciate each other's strengths and weaknesses. I think you have to try and coach to your the your, your best characteristics if you can. Yeah, nice. Um, and if you if you wouldn't mind sharing, I'd love to hear about your um, the Mount Everest and the imagery that you used with that uh, with the team and the vision. Yeah. So so. Um, yeah, the Mount Everest was, um, I, in trying to make things visual, I, I, we did an exercise with the, with the athletes just about choosing something that we could relate to, see, and with that imagery, keep on coming back to it. Because, you know, if it's just words, um, then, then it's not always, uh, doesn't always, it's not easy to come back to and back to and back to. And you want something that can describe things um, in different ways. And so we... we well, they chose a, the mountain and the highest mountain in the world. And I, I loved that, you know, being a, a Kiwi and knowing that um, Sidman Hillary climbed that. And so now if there's a, a pub quiz or a, a Trivial Pursuit uh, game that a Belgium hockey player's in, I'll get it right because I told them about eight or nine times. Um, but what, what's nice about it is you can use it in different ways. So... Um, what I did at the start is I put a whole lot of different letters on a picture of a mountain, you know, and there's a road going to the mountain and, and so on. And I used it to try and get a gauge. Where does the team think we're at? And it was so scattered. They had so many different thoughts as to where the team was. And that was understandable at the time. Um, but by the time we were two or three weeks out from the Olympic games, everyone was on the same letter. And that's really comforting to know as a as a player and as a coaching uh, group that that you know everything's aligned. We all have the same thoughts. We we understand the difficulties that's gone before us, mm-hmm. and we still understand what's ahead of us. But we know where we're positioned, and so that was so that was quite a good byproduct of choosing a mountain. Um, but I also like it because it it helps tell that story of of the climb. You know, like. Um, we often, when we look at a mountain, we, we think, oh, you know, at the top, you're going to have this fantastic view. And you do, but it's only for such a, a short period of time, especially in comparison with, you know, the climb up the mountain. And, and so I quite like it, um, high-performing athletes, just to talk about that, that daily grind that has to happen sometimes, you know, when it's the middle of winter, it's dark, cold, and you go and you have your first training session, um, and and um, you're still a bit sore from the night before. You have your lunch and your smoothie, the highlight of the day. Then you get ready for your second session. Um, and by the time you leave, it's cold and it's wet and dark. And get home, you lie on the sofa, and you, you just want people to bring you food and look after you. You know, now those days you don't have to love them, but as a high-performing athlete, you need to appreciate what's in those days. You know, they they're often the days that change the metal colour from bronze to silver or silver to gold because not everyone can do that. And, and I think it's a story that that needs to be told as well. Like it's not it's not easy um, winning a gold medal. There's a, a lot of um, lifestyle choices and things like that. Um, and the mountain tells that quite well. Yeah, nice. If, if you had me and your team and um, you asked me to look at the mountain and I said, that I was one step away from, or I thought that as a group we were one step away from the top, but the general consensus is that we were a lot earlier in our journey. 
how would your conversation look with me to try and um, recalibrate me? Yeah, well, I think that is not um, actually a singular conversation. I think that's, um, that is your perception, you know, and so it's a perceptional change. And how that happens is through a whole array of, of different exposures to, to that alignment of, of the total group. So I, I don't think you could ever do it in one conversation. I, I would show evidence of what we're doing, you know, and, and constantly uh, try and get it um, so that if you're ahead of where we're at, to give a bit of a reality check and, and try and bring you into alignment. Same if you'd fallen way out of a line uh, in, in a backwards type of way, I'd be working very hard to promote some of those things and show you in many different ways how close uh, we are to succeeding and where we are in our journey. Um, so, so yeah, I, and again, it's, um, it's just time, you know, like what I would give you if you were um, in that position is I would give you time, time to readjust, but also give you some of my time so that um, kind of help you get, Get yourself back in balance. Mm, that's interesting because I was obviously that was a selfish question because I was thinking <laughs> uh, how to do that with um, players that get ahead, and that would be one thing. You often feel like you have to go in and make the change immediately and bring them back, but that was lovely to hear that. Just yeah, you've got time. Be patient with it. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's what people, you know, it's their reality, you know, and you want them to constantly give you their reality. So. If you're a coach that works on feedback and and so on, um, you have to be really careful uh, and very timely with the comments that you offer up because you either um, have or you have the possibilities of having such big impact, you know, and uh, and so you have to choose those sort of things very very carefully and um, how you influence it. Um, the realization of where an athlete is truly at uh, is never more powerful than when an athlete can verbalize it. Uh, well, in, in a way, it's it's a good test of a coach. You know, can you get your athlete's reality to align to your reality without actually telling them what your reality is? Yeah, um, I'm fascinated with when I listen to people like yourself and. I put um, you know Wayne Smith in a similar sort of category. Just seem to have this amazing awareness and self-awareness and um, desire to learn and to continually develop. Do you do do you journal? Like do you uh, make time in your day to just take time for you and to think about things? What do you have any processes to help with? Yeah, um, like. New Zealand's been a bit different than um, than when I was in Belgium. So, so time is, is a bit more um, erratic here for me. So, what I what I used to do is, my, my wife was a cardiologist, and, and so she would have on calls. And so, when she would have an on call, um, often that was my reflective time. So, um, so the kids would be in bed, she'd be at the hospital. And I would um, often just sit in the garden. I'd have a glass of wine and um, and a notebook, and I would just write things. You know, what do I want to do? What impact would that have? Um, and it would trigger ideas that um, a lot of what we've spoken about before have started with something like that. And it's um, yeah, it's it's incredibly simple um, and. and uh, but it, it, it just comes to you, or that's that's how I find it. The other the other way I used to be able to do it um, is I used to run, and I, I used to um, have that as moments where I would get clarity and, and thought. And now I'm doing it. Um, I'm doing a bit of cycling here, um, but the roads are so busy. Yeah. <laughs> I struggle. I, I have to stay really on the on the bike, otherwise I can't concentrate. But but I I, I do have moments for myself, and, and I. Um, I think that's when I do my best work. And, and at the moment, I'm trying to go through a bit of a period where I'm reflecting more and, and think, well, what's next for me and what should I be doing? What would I enjoy doing and stuff like that? So, yeah, I've 
been lucky enough to have a couple of moments in my life where I've just taken a step back to go forward. Mm, slow down to speed up. Yeah. Um, oh, I guess I hope that we're blessed in New Zealand to have you back. Now, I know you said you were going back to Belgium to do some stuff, but it would be such a such an asset for New Zealand to have you back and um, and certainly getting our coaches to be able to listen to you. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for that. It's nice. I've enjoyed uh, the contact so far. So hopefully I keep going. Yeah. Um, Shane, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I've, um, I feel like I've learnt so much from this chat and um, and I've got a little bit, fair bit of self-reflection to do actually uh, as a result, which is lovely. Um, yeah, thanks for your, um, taking the time to do this and, and good luck with your next uh, venture. Oh, it's really a pleasure. I enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, thanks very much.